Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about levers, principles, back in our movement coaches course. This is something that I th- think is going to be a little bit outside the box. Uh, and, and I think that's important to kind of establish before we go into the actual module because this is a paradigm shift from what we would learn in traditional anatomy and understanding that potentially levers aren't really the way the body moves. And it's important because it might shift the foundational aspect of things like mechanical advantage, things like first, second, and third class levers, really looking at a origin insertion based anatomy structure or framework, and there might be some incomplete thoughts there. This will be a really important module for the next several that we're going to go into between centration, tense gridity, um, and just general understanding of constraints-led environments uh, in regards to movement. Also, check out our website. We overall the whole thing aesthetically pleasing. Uh, it's going to be more intuitive, more functional, and really, honestly, it's going to show you how much progress you're making on all the modules. So if you didn't know, we have a subscription-based site, phpodcast.com, with a curriculum with four courses, coaching, movement, training, nutrition, and each one is broken up into principles, practical case study, and interview with a strength conditioning coach. So the whole point is to help you in terms of your development as a coach in those four disciplines, as well as there's debates and lectures, goes into a lot of different areas that I, I think are well-rounded and make a very holistic approach to improving your ability to coach. So check out phpodcast.com, see the module, you can see all the written part, all the graphics, all the other resources that we attach to this to help you understand a concept like this that might be really challenging if you're just going to listen to the podcast. Also, go to phpodcast.com to order strength deficit, the ability to leverage eccentric versus concentric ratios. This could be your go-to resource on how to make, maintain some sort of framework while you're trying to improve a quality like eccentric or concentric strength. Check out phpodcast.com to check that out, as well as realize.me, your command center for all health and data performance. This is what I use to track all of my progress, track a lot of my clients and members' progress. It's essentially just an amazing dashboard that I can customize experiments from all the wearable and all of the other data that I'm collecting throughout the day, week, month, and year. This is my actual go-to resource to help me organize and just try to figure out what the cause and effect relationship from any intervention that I'm doing, as well as what I should or shouldn't be tracking. Realize.me, you can get on their newsletter, as well as get on their wait list to add into their actual website. It's going to be a really good resource for you guys going forward. All right, without further ado, let's get into principles, levers, and maintaining space. So this is going to be a departure from what we've been talking about in our other movement courses in regards to variability and then really looking at how do we increase range of motion and then control of that range of motion, right? This idea is, you know, the, the central theme to all of movement, right? We, we've been building in this narrative that, all right, for us to have the greatest bandwidth or the greatest the highest ceiling possible in terms of movement and performance is centered off this concept of can we actually move through a very multivariate and very unpredictable environment and the more bandwidth we have aka variability aka range of motion and control of that range the better we're going to be able to respond to things that we simply can't prepare for or predict uh and, and i think that's the other idea is you know this this concept of as we start to narrow in on that, you know, what we're trying to trying to create as much variability so we can create as a low constraint environment 
in training to prepare athletes to perform at their highest level, which, you know, I think for a lot of people is going to be very hard to grasp. And, you know, this is why we spend so much time on in coaching of of just understanding the psyche and the relationship between our bias, our preference, our identity with the things that we choose to do, you know, and, you know, there's a a lot of debates and a lot of lectures I have on this website as well that I think would be definitely worth your time to understand that I'm, I'm not trying to say things that are novel or different. What I'm trying to do is lay down a framework that hopefully gives some sort of credence to potentially we need to think a little bit more progressively in what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then on the other end, it goes into if you're doing something novel or unique, you know, there's going to be detractors or people who who either are poorly understanding of that or, quite frankly, don't agree with it. And with that being said is in the idea, in the concept of doing something differentiated or against the grain, do you have objective proof that what you're doing is actually validated and supported? And when we start to think outside the box, and I think movement is this gray area that becomes very nebulous and really hard to de- define. And I don't think it should be personally. I think it should be like everything else. We should have some sort of clear criteria, range of motion control, standards of movement, uh, integrity of movement. We should have some sort of purpose for what we're doing for movement and not just letting it flow organically and saying, what will happen will happen. You know, there's an idea that we need to establish with a movement and physiology and coaching and even training that, you know, the whole entire point of all of these podcasts and, and modules and courses is to establish some sort of baseline conversation of this is this is a situation or a concept that we need to understand and we need to learn how to integrate that into our thinking not into what we're doing but our thinking so this is hopefully a good segue into we're essentially going to talk about in this podcast that levers don't exist in the body and and i know this is something that's pretty difficult to grasp um, and one of the things that i want you to understand is it's okay to have the the association of levers or leverage in the body or mechanical advantage in the body to understand how movement may occur but it's a very poor correlation it's a very it's a very poor understanding of actually what goes on in the human body and and the thing i think will help is this and i put this within our forum on our website for the subscribers is you know, some different resources to check out from guys like Bill Hartman or even Doug Brignall. And we can go even a little further here down the road, but we do have a, a module on tense agility down the, in the future. But some of the stuff from Rolfing and fascial trains and fascial lines. And, you know, what we can say is that functional anatomy is, is almost like a paradigm shift from traditional anatomy and understanding muscles, bones, ligaments, understanding origins, assertions, understanding pination angle, understanding all these all these basic level things that are a prerequisite to to helping someone perform at a higher level is critical, right? It's like arithmetic before calculus. And and the thing that hopefully becomes more and more 
illuminated or elucidated is this idea of the closer we can get to higher level anatomy and understanding, the better we can solve problems. But we still need to have some sort of baseline, at least knowledge, and then some sort of common language, right? You know, we can we can talk about the you know gait, or we can talk about different kinetic linkings. We can talk about different functional movement patterns. We can talk about a bunch of different things in a bunch of different environments and a bunch of different constraints or lack thereof. But the idea is, can we use a reference point to help us understand, you know, what we're talking about in the first place? This is challenging for a lot of folks in this transition of you have to depart what you learned in a two-dimensional sphere eventually. If not, you're going to be pretty limited within your scope and what you can provide for a client or athlete. You know, so this general concept of, okay, well, I know where a muscle originates and inserts. I know what the line of pull is. I know what the function of that muscle, or at least the operational function of that muscle is. I know that there is a mechanical advantage or disadvantage based off of the line of pull or the pinnation angle. And then you got to go, okay, that's that's all good information. And that's really, really good and solid to know, but it's kind of where it stops. And when you get into a, a open environment with multivariate influences in three-dimensional sphere, you start to realize that there's a lot of gaps. There's a ton of gaps, actually. And, you know, that I'm going to explain this in my layman's way to the person that I'm working with. So they have some sort of concept of why they're doing what they're doing and what they're doing. But I have to think a little bit more progressively in terms of there's just a lot more sphere of influence going on here within a three-dimensional multivariate environment working with open systems. And in regards to creating change, you know, we need to kind of get outside of the purview of traditional anatomy and start to think a little bit more progressively towards functional anatomy and thinking about that in some sort of clinical setting, if someone had a bone touching another bone, that would be a problem, right? That's a compressive force. That's, that's going to lead to arthritis. That's going to lead to impingement. That's going to lead to some sort of patellotendinopathy. That's an issue that, quite frankly, when we break down what we're doing on a high level with our clients and athletes becomes problematic. But as the entire premise for levers, levers in the body, that a fulcrum needs to be in contact with the effort and moment arm to be actually a lever. It's when they're separated, they're no longer a lever. They're just floating pieces, right? It's a triangle and two, two lines. It, it's a it's a it's meaningless, but that's but that's the intent of the human body is to create space between our joints to control space within our joints, right? And this is again another concept of tensegrity that we're going to talk about here in a later module. But if we can't maintain a couple things, compression and tension, you know, right? Are we are we creating space or or limiting space to? hopefully create some sort of control or range are we able to do that in multiple planes and vectors right so we have our three planes of motion sagittal frontal and transverse and we have our three vectors vertical horizontal and rotational you know we can look at our bones and our supporting connective tissue and our supporting contractile tissue are all working in synergy to help support movement 
in all planes and vectors. And the key fundamental aspect is if we can't maintain space, what's well, easy to make compression, right? We can close off a joint, I can pack it or I can centrate it. It's really hard to maintain space, especially if we have fixed postures of sitting and not articulating joints the way we should be articulating. Hence what we talked about in terms of maintaining space and connective tissue function and and all sorts of fun stuff we talked about in previous movement lectures is that variability aspect, that the, va the variability is limited by range and not not by compression, right? That ability to create space in a joint and move through full degrees of freedom is be is the easiest, the biggest task we need to accomplish, and hence why we spend so much time talking about it as is. But as we start to look at it from that simple context, if we can't maintain space in a joint, we start to create compression, and we start to look at well, how does the mechanical advantage actually work? or disadvantage work, it's off of the idea of looking at first, second, and third class levers, right? And and to be honest, you know, if we're looking at isolation exercises with a, with maybe on a machine with a lot of like stability, we can use the leverage concepts from that, right? We can look at, you know, where the fulcrum is, we can look at where the effort arm is, we can look at, we can look at where that actual mechanical stress is going to be placed based off of where we orient that fulcrum, relatively speaking to the load and gravity. That's all good, and that's great. But the majority of us are try, probably thinking in lines of, I'm going to do a compound closed kinetic chain training environment with three planes of motion and hitting all vectors. I'm going to struggle to really find the true vector or the the true mechanical disadvantage and advantage, right? In fact, you see most alterations, and we'll talk about this within our case study, is most alteration to exercises is really trying to find as much mechanical advantage associated to gravity and not really looking at the, le the bones or the actual joints as, as fulcrums or levers, right? And a classic example of this would be looking at a squatting exercise. And, you know, the, the original pandemic was our squats look like hinges and our hinges look like squats, meaning that we push our hips back and keep a vertical shin in our squat pattern. We, we bend at the knee in our hinge patterns, you know, and we, we can't associate lines of pull off of these big, these big joints that are supposed to be able to handle that, right, based off of the, the effort in the moment, or the effort in the fulcrum, effort arm in the fulcrum, that if the knee can't sustain tension in the quadricep, it's gonna find a mechanical advantage elsewhere by pushing backwards to try to center its mass backwards to take tension off that quad, and then we're gonna get very hingy. And then vice versa, if we can't maintain tension either in the low back or the, the hamstring, that hip starts to push forward and the knees start to bend in hinge patterns. And all that is is, is essentially trying to accommodate a very poorly managed space and a very poorly organized compressed structure. But with that being said is, I think it serves its purpose to go through the levers, right? So if we think about it from the context of, I have a first class lever, right? Which, you know, is your jaw, it looks like a scissor, right? So the fulcrum is, is in between the effort and the lever arm. We have a second class lever so that'd be your, you know, your gastroxoleus or your ankle. Um, and that's kind of your wheelbarrow looking thing, right? We have the, we have the fulcrum 
on we have the lever arm in between the fulcrum and the effort arm and then we have our you know more traditional one that we look at traditionally in the body which would be our third class lever meaning that you know we have our elbow or a knee which is places the the fulcrum again between the effort and the lever arm but that lever arm is the the forearm right that that looking at the bicep is pulling on the forearm to create some sort of effort into that resistance right so bicep contracts it pulls on the forearm the the radial ulnar uh, structure and then it pulls that dumbbell up and we can perform a bicep curl you know and again like these are simple concepts with the idea of traditionally lever right that you know you have that it looks like chopsticks right so we're squeezing at a certain point and that lever comes closer to the effort arm right and I think that's great. Right? I think that's helpful. And I think they're kind of like, oh, okay, I can see that. That's cool. That's good to know, right? But when you look at the actual muscle fiber and you look at the connective tissue, you look at you look at the joint function, right? We can look at even something like a hinge joint. Like it's not completely flexion and extension. There's pronation and supination effects. So there's got to be some sort of rotational effect there. So what happens there? What is the lever for for pronation and supination? Like, I don't think that's simple and easy to understand. You know, there's some sort of like mechanical advantage and disadvantage, but how do we integrate that into a chin up, right? So do I have mechanical advantage or disadvantage when I'm doing a supinated grip, when I'm doing some sort of pull up? And now I look at it from the context of gravity is in a different position. So I start from a different position and I impact gravity in a different way, you know? so. That's a really important concept to kind of you know start to think and poke holes in this idea of there's actually, it's actually not true that we have levers in the body. That muscles do pull on bones. It's just not the way we want it to be. And it's a different concept altogether, which we'll talk about a lot more within the tense gridity module, but this idea of we're creating tension and that's alternating with some sort of compression-like strategy. And there's another way to think about this too. And hopefully this, when we get into the tense gritting model, we'll talk about this a lot more. But, you know, this idea of joint by joint, of this alternating sequence of stability and mobility and joints and function and what we need to do to be able to move and, and locomote in a very efficient manner without energy leaks or other concepts that are just really important to do. But the thing that I think is so important, and if we can look at the bone or the levers that, I mean, um, I'm sorry, the joints that we're really gonna focus on, you know, we got a hinge joint, so elbow and knee, we got a we got a saddle joint, so ankle and a wrist, and we look at the final one, the big one would be the ball and socket, looking at the hip and shoulder. And when we look at the ball and socket joint, it's gotta do all six major movements. Flex, extend, internally, externally rotate, ab and adduct. And if it doesn't, the first thing you have to think about is it's a loss of space within that joint, right? If we create some sort of excessive compressive forces, whether we're just posturally sitting in a position, rounded shoulders, flex at the waist, if we're doing redundant activities, meaning that we're running or jogging for extended periods of time, or all we do is squat, all of our movement patterns start to lead to certain certain adaptations, right? Wolf's law is we start to lay down tissue, direct correlation to what we're doing repeatedly, right? So bone tissue, connective tissue, um, even cross-sectional muscle area, start to respond to the things that we're doing repeatedly. 
So if we can break down one simple aspect of that redundant activities or redundant positioning starts to lead to excessive compressive forces in one side or one aspect of that joint leads to potentially impingement or some sort of pathology that is problematic that we've lost space, right? That most problems from redundancy is a loss of space. That's a really big issue behind it, right? We lose structural balance, length tension relationships, force velocity goes down, and then we have this issue of pain or pathology because we are creating friction in areas that we're gonna do it. And I, I think the best analogy I can look at is when you eat a lot of really crappy food and you start to develop plaque and tartar, on your, your teeth and you start to floss and you find it's harder and harder to get between your teeth and it's harder and harder to remove that stuff. And that's the same thing with movement. It's it's you have a lot of stuff built up based off of the, re, the, the redundant things that you're doing or not doing and you lost space in that joint just much like you lost space between your teeth. And the outcome is problematic, right? We need to start to adjust programming. We need to start to adjust corrective and movement we need to address the issue might sometimes we might even a surgical issue but it's that maintenance of space in which creates this freedom of movement and it's the control of that space is what allows us to create force velocity or work see it's it's an inverted perspective based off of compressing certain joints is easy to do, right? I, you, I can get you to compress a joint extremely easily. Tuck your chin, retract your shoulders, pull your shoulders into your shoulder socket, externally rotate your femur, dial in your feet into the ground. I can create compression somewhere pretty readily just by teaching you how to centrate or teaching you how to create pact or create tension or radiate, right? This, this idea is I can close the joint off really quickly. But I can't do the, the opposite. I can't create range without doing some serious concentrated effort and work. But if, if that is in fact the case, how is it that we can actually have a lever in the body, right? If it's a third class lever in the elbow and the idea is to maintain some sort of space between that, that radio, radius ulnar and the humerus, that the elbow doesn't actually really exist. It's just a space between those two bones connected with connective tissue, tendons, ligaments, and ground substance. It's that space or that ability to maintain that relationship between those bones is what allows for movement. And if I have space in that joint, I don't have a fulcrum. That I'm moving an object relatively speaking to another one through tension yes but it's not the same as a as what we see with a pair of tongs or chopsticks right i'm not moving the the radius closer to the the humerus like i would when i'm moving a chopstick closer to a, another chopstick with my fingers i'm not doing that i'm doing something different entirely and I'm going to pause right there because, you know, I want everyone to sit and think about this in terms of how movement actually occurs. You know, we, we create tension off of this contractile tissue that gets shorter, right? The sarcomere contracts as Z, disc, Z lines come closer together. 
the myosin enacted cross bridge starts to connect and pull these sarcomeres together. And then we start to create some sort of relative movement, right? And the connective tissue is managing the space within that joint. And then the other bone starts to move closer to the other bone, right? And we start to, we start to change that orientation, right? And we can look at if I don't have enough sarcomeres present in either the distal or the proximal, I'm going to be weak in certain portions of that movement. There's also an element of gravity to this. And I would recommend to everyone read Doug Brignol's book, Physics, Physics of Resistance Training, because you know the idea is mechanical advantage is relative to where we are parallel or perpendicularness to gravity. You know, and you know, if we're parallel to gravity, we have a mechanical advantage. If we have a, if we're perpendicular to gravity, we are a mechanical disadvantage. And this is where muscle architecture really starts to to organize and structure, relatively speaking, to the world. And we want to have as much sarcomeres present when we're perpendicular to gravity, right? And that's that's why we have certain pushing muscles that have more pennate orientation and we'll talk about this within our gear ratio funk gear ratio module but the idea again comes down to it's not a lever that's moving it's something else entirely it's it's a whole different concept and yes it's nice to say that's a you know, third class lever the elbow and the knee that's great that's cool to know that's cool to say and you know when i'm in basic level biomechanics and, and i'm going through this stuff like i think that's important to have some sort of foundation of this but it's not actually true because again there's a, a space in between that and there's something else entirely going on and the thing that we're going to get really into this is you know fluid dynamics and understanding essentially all we're doing is moving fluid throughout the body when we have a closing angle meaning that the the bones are coming closer together that that space is closing off and this fluid, right? Our body is predominantly water. is going to get sloshed around. It's going to get moved. Right. And uh, there's a concept. And I think most people that have strength train understand this is that second rep is always easier than the first rep. And the question you got to ask yourself, is that because I'm more potentiated? Am I going through the size principle or is it because there's more momentum occurring and the fluids going on within that joint? Right. So think about it as, I'm squeezing a balloon with water and then that balloon goes to the other end, right? So the squeeze size is closing angle. The what where the water displaces to is the open angle. And once I release that hand, that water rushes back into the closing angle. Right? So from the open angle to the closing angle, or I'm pushing water back and forth, eventually it's gonna get a lot of momentum and pressure built up where it's gonna to want to rush back into it. So think about a bicep curl. The second rep is easier than the first rep. Why? Maybe because we're bringing more, more motor units and muscle fibers to the, the party. Absolutely. Maybe. Maybe we're preceding the second rep with an eccentric contraction. That's a whole other concept altogether. Or maybe it's because I, when I flexed my elbow, I pushed all the fluid from the, the bicep side or the, the front side to the posterior side, the tricep side. And now that balloon is squeezed on one end of the wall without, without water in it. And I start to lower my forearm and I create an open angle now on the bicep side or the front side. That water rushes back. 
I get to the bottom, there's a lot of momentum of water crashing into the anterior part of that capsule. And now water wants to go the opposite direction, right? The It's a physical law that whatever happens, there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction to it. So as I start to get some reps going, fluid starts to go back and forth. Is that a lever going on? Is that, go, is that actually a lever? And I think that's the thing that's so hard about all this is yes, and on paper that elbow is a third class lever and it's kind of like tw- squeezing, tong- squeezing some sort of chopsticks or tongs. But as I start to get to my first and the second rep, and I'm still starting off para, I'm still starting off perpendicular to gravity. And I'm sorry, I, I said that backwards before. Parallel to gravity is when we have the we need to have the most the actual sarcomeres present to be uh, as strong as possible. But when we start to look at it from I start off perpendicular to gravity, I get too parallel to gravity with that forearm, and I get past parallel to gravity back to perpendicular to gravity because I go through a full range of motion, everything that I do. Then I start to lower it down, and the mechanical advantage and disadvantage based off of where that lever is strong or weak is not the reason why we're mechanically advantaged or disadvantaged. Because we kind of offset that when we adjust joint position or we do a bunch of things, but we also have a bunch of fluids flowing around and we have momentum occurring. And it's not just contractile tissue that's making that movement occur. Which goes into this whole other thing that we need to understand that Yes, that biceps may be more parallel muscle fiber, and you'll see that parallel muscle fibers have a mechanical advantage because they always start off in a lengthened position and they are perpendicular to gravity. So therefore, they need to have need to have a little bit more mechanical advantage, relatively speaking, to to more extension-based muscle fibers like para, para, more penate muscle fibers. But it goes into this direction that. You know, we need to have some sort of better explanation as to why that movement is actually occurring. And thinking outside the box again, when you discuss this or when we have this conversation with someone outside of maybe this information, this will come off as really challenging to the status quo. This is going to come off as potentially differentiated to be different right and you know when you think about it you have to have the bandwidth and the courage to understand that this isn't a very easy thing to understand and therefore a very difficult thing to explain quite frankly you might not even have to have the conversation is it going to make a net difference for you out there in the field to go there's actually no such thing as a third class lever in the body maybe it's just easier to say that there is and maybe it's just easier to just leave it at that I think that's fine. I don't think it's the end of the world. But when you're looking at movement occurring in your body, you know, I, I don't necessarily think you need to get on the table and say that first, second, and third class levers actually don't exist because we need to maintain space within the joint. And we lose space in the joint, we actually lose function of that joint and potentially create pathology. So therefore, there's no effort and effort and um, moment arm connect, or lever arm connected to the actual uh, fulcrum. You don't need to have that conversation, but you do need to appreciate that there's more to anatomy and there's more to biomechanics. And the fact that we have human bodies that are open systems working, living and working in multivariate, three-dimensional, multi-vector worlds is 
imperative to breaking that, breaking down that quote unquote fourth wall to start to ask more detailed and higher level questions to go deeper into, hmm, there's some issues with this, this logic here. That joint needs to maintain space. So maybe there's a different model altogether for leverage. Maybe it's going to be tensegrity this interplay between compression and tension. I mean, do you think what a suspension bridge would do as opposed to a excavator, right? Maybe there's different orientations and lines and poles. So maybe I need to think in terms of, of anatomy trains and fascial lines and different structures that create motion and movement, relatively speaking to, you know, a traditional biomechanics course. You know, maybe I need to think about actual controlling space and constraints laid environments relatively speaking to you know maybe a a bodybuilding origin insertion bringing the insertion closer to the origin creating tension there on a fixed machine because i'm training athletes to create control and space with with low constraints or an open undetermined environment maybe i need to think that way you know, and maybe I need to think about remodeling of tissue, not necessarily consensually shorting something, which is, I think, another default here is when we understand, when we think in terms of only levers of first, second, third class levers in the body, you look at from the, the limitation perspective dictates the, the strategy. And that goes into concentric strength is going to be always the biggest limiting factor. And you're not going to create architectural changes only going to a certain level of capacity of that tissue and creating some sort of structural changes within that joint, it's going to limit your overall effect and performance, right? And then we're going to limit potentially eccentric and isometric contractions as well. And then the final aspect, it's if we think only in levers, we're going to lose potentially the opportunity to create optimal space and tension relationships within joints and or non-contractile tissue, contractile tissue. We're going to lose balance and understanding how to move throughout space and space and and integrate with the ground or people around us. You know, we're going to miss the opportunity to develop some sort of holistic approach to truly creating a resilient and high-performing athlete. That that person that's just organically good and multiple environments and situations is is possible through training and direct inputs and we can improve that capacity we can't make them all elite level athletes but we can make them better we're not making it better in singular myopic things we're making it better and i think that's something that as we start to unpack this and we take this departure away from variability that you start to think progressively and functional anatomy and concepts like in models like tensegrity and centration and and organize, organizing and structuring the body to move with fluidity and control and potentially high force or high velocity or, or long durations or work right this this general concept is integrating between biomechanics bioenergetics and and biomotor abilities there's always this you know kind of like ebb and flow between that back and forth but it comes back to if i can't move under through a full range of motion based off that joint's function or maintain space and i can't control that range 
I'm never really going to have the opportunity to work those three funnels of biomechanics, bioenergetics, or biomotor the way I want to. And it's never going to translate the way I want to. That when I get to a very low constrained environment, meaning that's just a lot of random, that I'm never really going to be the athlete that I should be because I have such limitations. And I think it starts with breaking this like pre-existing dogma of like, oh, wow, okay, first, second, third class lever. You know, the draw is a, a, a first class lever. The, the cat or the ankle is a second class lever. The knee and elbow is a you know, third class lever, right? And you know, can you tell me what the hip is? Because uh, I, I really can't. Like, and I'm not trying to sound dumb or like, or I sound everyone that I, you know, just, oh, it's silly to think about that. Because I think it's an important thing to kind of grasp early on. But in the other end, it goes into, I'll be damned, it's hard to ask someone actually what a, th- a hip and shoulder actual lever is, depending on what the movement is, because there's like so many variables going into it. And it's hard to really zero in on that when we start to do a very well-rounded strength, strength conditioning program. And as you start to start to break down your you know, structure and belief system and framework and model, you know, there's going to be some departure from stuff. And it's not saying that's bad or wrong. It's just, it's evolution. And it's looking at it from the concept of you becoming a better coach means that you think about things a little bit more, more objectively, but also too, in a way that's respective of the problems that you're seeing, right? And getting some injuries, getting some overuse stuff, getting some things that you quite, quite frankly can't explain. You have to find and dig deeper and you have to almost throw away and abandon certain thoughts and, and associations to really be able to do that. And it's up to you whether you want to share that information with someone or try to, you know, dive deeper. Uh, but it also is on the other end goes into this concept of you know, how much you're willing to change and grow determines how much value you can bring someone else. And if you're limited in that perspective, then, you know, then you're only going to be what you're going to be right now. And that's probably not fair to you. And it's probably definitely not fair to your clients and athletes. So take some time in this. I recommend going on the forum because I posted some stuff from Bill and Doug, um, tremendous resources. And I highly recommend those resources as well. Cause it's just, I mean, I remember my mind being blown when I'm like reading these things and going through their lectures, um, just profound thought and, Know, kudos to them for having the courage to go through that, but more importantly, be able to explain it in a way that's incredibly uh, helpful. So, hope this helps, guys. Uh, make sure you check out next week. We're going to go through a little bit more of that hydrodynamic aspect and practical, and then case study. We're going to look at isometric or isolation versus compound movements. Um, I think it's going to be a really cool and fun module. So, stay with us. Um, dig into the resources that we have to support this. Look at the graphics. Get on the get on the website to become a member because it's just. You're flying blind in a lot of ways. So um, I hope this helps, guys, and I appreciate you guys, and we'll see you guys next time.